Up at Mount Tambourine in the Gold Coast hinterland, there's a Christian campsite, a place where conventions and conferences are held. In the main meeting place, up the front there's a big sign that says, All one in Christ Jesus. All one in Christ Jesus. The words come from the Bible. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. They're great words because they're biblical words. They express a deep truth about what it means to be the people of God. Because we're all created by the one God, and if you're a Christian, because we're all saved by the one Lord Jesus, we are filled by the one Spirit, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Except we often don't feel this is the case. We confess with our mouth, all one, but our experience doesn't match. Many older people feel overlooked or unheard, particularly older women. Uh, This is rampant in our youth-obsessed culture. Uh, Last week, I popped into a seniors tennis competition that was happening in town. I remember hearing one of the ladies, uh, who wasn't as senior as some of the other competitors, I heard her saying to someone, Oh, don't ask me about my age. I wish I was still young. I don't think she was only referring to the physical issues of age, but being valued and celebrated in our culture. We're all one in Christ Jesus, unless you're elderly, in which case we put you out to pasture. Many younger people feel excluded in churches. Church feels disconnected from the real world, from the culture they're connecting with. On Sunday, they hear a way of speaking they've never heard before. The style of music is something that was pop or folk music of a previous generation. They feel older Christians don't understand them. And sadly, they feel they don't want to make the time to listen and to learn about the struggles and temptations they face, which means they're saddened to miss out on the wisdom. Some people who are single feel church is too focused on families. And when we say families, there's a certain cultural model of what we mean. People from cultural, ethnic or language backgrounds that aren't the dominant one in a church, if they're not from the majority culture, they feel alienated, like strangers, treated like they're something exotic and are often misunderstood. We say, all one in Christ Jesus, but do we live out this truth? How should we respond to the inevitable pressures that push against this truth about who we are as God's people? This is something the earliest Christians had to deal with as the community of believers grew and diversified. uh, Some of the believers saw they weren't treated as well as others. Uh, Verse 1, have a look in your Bible, Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Uh, What's this daily distribution of food? Well, as we've been going through Acts, a few people have been asking about this whole selling possessions and giving to the needy. Uh, People have been wondering, well, how do they know who is the needy who need the possessions? Well, this is part of the answer. 
it seems there was a significant number of widows in the church. Uh, widows who had no other means to put food on the table. And their brothers and sisters in Christ were stepping up and providing for them. And you've got to realise in the first century, there was no superannuation, no insurance, no pension. If your husband died, you didn't inherit. It was your children, and particularly your eldest son, who would get the inheritance. And if the eldest son wasn't willing to support his mum, and that may have been common if she started trusting in Jesus, but he didn't approve, if the children wouldn't support their mum, then she'd be destitute. And so church stepped up and became truly her family. As sad as this situation is, it's also beautiful. The believers were living out what Jesus calls us all to, to be the household of God. We're not told how many widows the community were feeding, but by now we know there were thousands and thousands of believers, so I can't imagine this was a small number of widows and others they were feeding every day. Now this gospel generosity was great, but there was a problem. And to see the problem, you've got to understand two words that sound a bit strange. Hellenistic and Hebraic. Hellenistic and Hebraic. And what do they mean? Hebraic is probably the easier one. It, this one means Hebrew speaking. Hellenistic just means Greek speaking. So Hebraic equals Hebrew, Hellenistic equals Greek. Now look at verse 1. It talks about Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. So the two groups are both Jewish. Their family trees go all the way back to Abraham and Sarah. They would also have been religiously pretty much the same. Before they heard the gospel, they worshipped the God of Israel. And now they worship Jesus as Israel's Messiah and Lord. They're both Jews. What's the difference? The difference is cultural. Most likely, Hebraic Jews had always lived in the province of Judea. The Hellenistic Jews had grown up and lived all their life in other countries, countries more influenced by Greek culture. And maybe the Hellenistic Jews had moved to Jerusalem in their latter years because they wanted to die and be buried in the promised land. Or maybe they're people who'd come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, heard the gospel, believed and stayed. But although they had the same ethnicity and religion, culturally they were vastly different. The Hellenistic Jews thought and acted like Greekish people, and the Hebraic Jews acted and thought like Hebrew people. Can you imagine the dynamics that would have been so different between these two groups? Now, I have to admit, I haven't read any books or articles that back me up on this next point, but based on what we see here in Acts and a bit of common sense, just imagine what the relationships would be like between these two groups. I reckon both groups suffered from pride. The Hebraic Jews probably believed we're the real deal. We're authentic, we're genuine, we're Jewish through and through. We haven't compromised like the Hellenists. Our culture is far superior. Uh, the Hellenistic Jews probably thought they were cosmopolitan, well-educated, well-traveled, better informed. Our culture is far superior. My guess is both of these groups had cultural pride and looked down on the other group. 
Though to add into the mix, the Hebraic Jews, they held all the cards. They were in the majority. They were on their home turf. And all the apostles were Hebraic Jews. The entire leadership of God's people were Hebraic Jews. And so although I'm sure both were proud of their culture, the Hebraic believers were dominant and had all the power. And this is where we get the problem. Because as the widows were cared for, the Hellenistic, the culturally Greek widows, they look around and saw they were getting a raw deal. They weren't getting as much food on their plates. And so they go to the apostles. They don't spread rumour or unrest. They go straight to the source and explain the problem. And it's fantastic how the apostles respond. They don't get defensive. They don't say, guess you are, you're getting your fair share. Stop your complaining. They don't say, how dare you grumble against the Lord's anointed and question us. They don't respond by thinking, oh, handing out food is just too much of a hassle. And and now maybe with the, the Hellenistic Jews not so happy, there's a liability. What if one of these grumpy Hellenistic widows fakes food poisoning and sues us? Now, they don't say, you Hellenistic uh, Jews, you can never be pleased. You're always playing the victim card and secretly think you're better than everyone else. And they don't say, are you calling us racist? I can't be racist. One of my best friends grew up in Athens. No, they don't defend or deflect the complaint. Instead, they listen. They recognize they are failed to be fair and just, and they do something about it. They show how seriously they take the situation by assigning trusted people, men of character, assigning them to fix the problem. Verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The apostles see there's a real problem here, a serious problem, a problem that needs proper attention. So they change the way things happen. They set up a new system and delegate some of their authority to seven other men. Now, the wrong way to think this delegation, to take this delegation, is to think the ministry of word and prayer is more significant, more important than waiting on tables. That's not what they're saying. They're not saying, we're too important for this. We can tell this because of the words they use. We miss it in almost every English translation. The same word is used to describe the ministry of the word and the ministry of tables. Uh, The same word is used to describe serving the word and serving at tables. Both the apostles and the seven are servants, are ministers. Delegation isn't a way of saying, oh, that task is not important. In fact, it's saying the opposite. It says it's so important. It shouldn't be something I squeeze into the edges and gaps in my day. By delegating authority to feed widows, the apostles communicate this is so important. It's so central to what followers of Jesus must do. It's so essential to get it right. It needs the attention of seven men. Delegation also shows the apostles' character. 
They're not trying to hold on to power and authority. They want to share ministerial authority with seven others. We also see how important this is because of the job description, the job requirements the apostles give. The apostles ask the believers to put forward seven names and they tell them what the requirements are. They don't say, choose seven people who are good at logistics, who can organise a pantry and carry lots of plates and wash up really, really well at the end. No, it's about character. The non-negotiables are wisdom and being full of the Spirit. They must be people who love Jesus, who live consistently, no fake godliness. If they're full of the Spirit, from what we've seen so far in Acts, being full of the Spirit means they speak boldly about Jesus. And wisdom means more than just having smart answers. It's about living well in God's world, knowing the fear of the Lord. They're the non-negotiable requirements for this ministry. In a few minutes, we're going to be electing a new committee of management. As nominations are put forward, what kind of people should we be looking for? Now, I don't think our church leadership structure is exactly based on Acts 6. These are the early days when the apostles led. I think a more regular church structure is like what we see in Acts chapter 20. But I think the principle of the kind of person that character is the most important thing for Christian leadership, this is uh, consistent all through the Bible. So don't nominate someone just because they've got a pulse. There are churches that get desperate for someone, anyone, to fill a role and they live to regret it. Don't nominate someone to the committee of management simply because they're a builder or an accountant. Nominate them because you are affirming their Christian character. They're someone you know are full of the spirit and wisdom, who live wholeheartedly and consistently for Jesus. Of course, practical skills, certain competencies are necessary on our committee of management, but character is number one. Character matters most. And that's what the Jerusalem church did. The church nominates seven men to take on this leadership of table ministry and the apostles agree and affirm who they chose. Verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Seven men full of faith, the spirit and wisdom. They're nominated to coordinate and ensure all the widows, no matter their cultural background, all the widows are justly and fairly provided for. Two really important things to notice about the seven they chose. The first is, what job were they given again? Table ministry, make sure, making sure everything is fair and equitable. But in the next few chapters of Acts, uh, chapters 6 and 7 are all about Stephen, the first bloke on the list. What's he doing? Boldly proclaiming the gospel. And chapter 8 is all about Philip, the second guy on the list, boldly proclaiming the gospel. 
Uh, providing for widows and orphans is really important. Proclaiming Christ crucified is really important. Uh, what we're seeing is by enabling and authorizing these men to step up into ministry, God uses them and they step up into the ministry of tables and of the word. They serve at tables and serve by speaking the word. And that's because they're full of the spirit and wisdom. The other interesting thing, which we can easily miss, uh, these seven names are all Greek names. The seven men the church chose are all Hellenistic Jews. Actually, that's not quite true. Uh, Nicholas isn't ethnically a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's even more of an outsider than these Hellenistic Jews. Though even before becoming a Christian, Nicholas was fully converted, fully initiated, all the way to being circumcised. uh, And it was as a Jewish convert he came to Christ. Really interesting, not one, not one Hebrew name on the list. This is so countercultural. It shows the earliest Christians put their money where their mouth is when it comes to all one in Christ Jesus. The apostles didn't try and keep power in the dominant social group. They didn't give jobs to the boys. If only or, or mainly Hebraic Jews had been chosen, it would subtly communicate God only uses Hebrews. God loves culturally Hebrew believers more than others. That it would suddenly communicate that you've got to get rid of your Greek culture to be really valuable and really acceptable to God. But that's not what they did. It's a pretty wise move. One of the things it'll do is straight away the Hellenistic Jewish widows know, no, you're serious. When only Hebraic Jews had authority, they hadn't got their fair share. They hadn't got what they deserved, justice. They're going to trust people from their own cultural group who are full of the spirit and wisdom from their own cultural group to do what's fair and just towards them, as well as seeing in real concrete ways that they are valued in God's kingdom. When we're part of the dominant cultural group, It's hard to see things through the eyes of people from other cultural groups. We've got blind spots. And often the blind spots mean we're inadvertently, we inadvertently exclude or undervalue people who are from the subdominant group. One of the ways we can live out all one in Christ Jesus is to appoint people from different cultural groups into leadership. I'm not saying ignore character. That's non-negotiable. But thinking about ways of lifting up and including those who might naturally be on the outside. This might mean thinking outside the box. What you think is leadership material is partly culturally determined. You might come from a culture that values efficiency and decisiveness, Whereas in another culture, they value relational skills, are the ability to really listen to the whole group. And so empowering others into leadership might mean questioning your own cultural assumptions about leadership without compromising on character, which is what God says matters. God's not too fussed about what our culture values in leadership. He does care about character. Sadly, I can't think of many examples of where churches have done well at this. 
I can think of one, a church where many Iranians moved into the area, many of whom were refugees. They started coming to the church. Some of them were already believers. Others became believers after hearing the gospel. This church was on the front foot to include and give a voice to the Iranians. So they'd have a Bible reading in both English and Farsi. And eventually, one of the Iranians was made an elder of their church. Now, this comes with difficulty. It may feel uncomfortable to have a Bible reading in a language you don't understand. It would probably be easier to only have people from your culture in leadership in your church and maybe even have the only people of your culture in your church. Let those others go somewhere else and find somewhere else where they fit in better. Embracing brothers and sisters across cultures is hard work, but to not do this denies the mission of the gospel and the heart of God. The key verse in Acts tells us God's plan. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is God's plan. And his plan isn't just to save Hebraic Jews to the ends of the earth, but Jew, Samaritan and Gentile. And that means to be all one in Christ Jesus means our churches will unite across differences and across cultures. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to say this even more strongly. In case you haven't heard it, listen up. If a church is less culturally diverse than the community around it, whether that's the ethnic cultures or the cultures of different age groups or of different education and different kinds of of employment, if your church, if our church is less culturally diverse than the community around it, You've got to ask, is what draws this church together, the gospel of our Lord Jesus, or cultural comfort? Is it the priority of Jesus or our preferences that unite us? Are we all one in Christ or our culture? Because if God's mission is to save people from every tribe, language and nation, It won't be your culture that's dominant. And that's what we see in the early church. As the believers live out their gospel calling to love one another deeply and to speak of Christ boldly, more and more people are saved. Verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I reckon the priests joining the Christian movement would have brought their own challenges. Previously, I guess, they sided with the high priest and the Sanhedrin, even persecuting Christians. They probably would have been used to receiving deference and respect because of their position in Jewish society, but coming to Jesus creates a new people and a new unity. Brothers and sisters, what does it mean for us to be all one in Christ Jesus? What privilege or power do you need to lay aside? What cultural comforts do you need to say no to in order to include and welcome someone from a culture that is different from your own? What are some things you prefer we do as a church family? Maybe it's a style of music or architecture or clothing or the way we do hospitality or eat together 
What cultural preferences are you willing to say no to in order to show Jesus is more precious to you? That, that loving your culturally different brothers and sisters in Christ is more valuable to you than your preferences. Who might we need to elevate, to delegate authority to, to show we're serious about being one in Christ Jesus? Because this is not an optional extra. This is core to our gospel witness, our witness to the truth that in Jesus and by the Spirit, we are one. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you because your plan is to save men and women from every tribe and nation. And this is great news because we are from those tribes and nations. We thank you that because of Jesus, people who would normally and naturally be divided can find deep and true unity in Christ. We confess we're sorry for the many ways, often they're little ways. We communicate to people from other cultural and ethnic backgrounds that they don't really belong. We are sorry for this because it denies the deep truth that not only because of creation, but even more because of the gospel, the things that naturally divide are overridden by being all one in Christ. Please change us. Change our church. Help us be welcoming to people from different cultural, economic, generational, educational or racial backgrounds. Please may our church more and more reflect what the heavenly church is like with people from every nation and language joining together in the praise of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.